Republicans implode, referendum pre-poll opens, rates on hold, and good news about bears. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me from the Harbour City, the place where the Opera House is apparently worth $11 billion in social capital, probably made all the more valuable by the fact that Van Batum had a best-selling Sydney theatre company play there called Banging Denmark and will soon have a new play on with the Sydney theatre company called A Fool in Love. Tickets but that one's at the Wharf. That one's not at the Opera House. It's even in an even bigger theatre at the Wharf. So <laughs> couldn't help but interrupt my introduction is my wife and your friend, the great and glorious Van Batum. How are you, Van? Oh, I'm sorry about the interruption, but I just didn't want people to turn up to the wrong venue. That's happened to me before. For a playwright, it's literally terrifying, and you're standing there going, why are the seats empty? We sold the tickets. And then you start getting text messages going, uh, isn't this at the Opera House? It's not till February, folks. Check out all the details online, Sydney Theatre Company website. General admission tickets go on sale, I believe, in the first week of December. If you're not already a subscriber and if you're not already a subscriber to the sydney theater company well what are you doing get onto it come on perfect christmas gift uh you know make sure van's nightmares don't come true that way you'll get all the information you need <laughs> i hate those nightmares oh my god indeed speaking of nightmares van the kevin mccarthy the speaker of the u.s house of representatives is living through one as we speak. Very briefly, just before we dive into this, I want to explain a couple of things for people who don't quite understand the difference between the Speaker in the US and the Speaker in Australia. Because, of course, we have a Speaker of the House of Representatives here in Australia. However, the American system, under the American system, the Speaker of the House of Representatives decides what bills get introduced into the Congress He also, or she, in this case he, decides uh, what committee positions people get. It's quite a powerful position. It's not quite the prime ministership, but it can function as a sort of de facto prime ministership when it is, as it is now, a Republican majority in the House of Reps and a Democratic president. So the fact of the matter is Kevin McCarthy is a Republican. He had a, I think it was 15 votes it took for him to become the Speaker of the House of Representatives. 15 rounds of a ballot. That's 15 right. 15 times he, he had to nominate and go through a voting process until he was finally confirmed Speaker. This is with his own people. This is with other Republicans. So you've got to get a majority. It's not just a majority of the of, of the vote. It's the majority of the House of Reps to become the Speaker. And it took it was a record breaking amount of votes, wasn't it? Rounds. Oh, of- it was a completely. They haven't had um, votes like this for a hundred years in the United States. And the issue that McCarthy had was that he wanted to be Speaker. He's always wanted to be Speaker. His ambition in life was to be Speaker. He's been very clear about that. And elements of his own Republican caucus were refused to vote for him and they kept putting it to the floor, the McCarthy people kept putting it to the floor. The Democrats thought it was hilarious. The Democrats were just sitting back and watching the Republicans tear themselves apart. 
because the Republicans couldn't get a majority because their own people were voting against him. So they extracted deals from him. If you want our vote, you have to give us this. If you want our vote, you have to give this, give us that. And one of the deals that they demanded was that it would only take one person in the entire Republican caucus in the Congress to put a motion to vacate the chair to roll the speaker. The only one person had to say, I want McCarthy out, and then the chair would be vacated and they'd have to have another ballot. And that's that's what's happened overnight. That's it's, literally what's happened. It is hilarious. Matt, Matt Gates, uh, who is himself under so many different clouds and suspicions, uh, I'm not even going to go into them in detail, but uh, he, is a, he is a far right uh, member of the Republican caucus. He put in the motion to uh, vacate the speakership. Uh, and, of course, eight Republicans broke ranks against McCarthy. Uh, the Democrats have held a position uh, the whole time, which is we won't vote for a Republican uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives, which is fair enough. I wouldn't expect uh, Labor to vote for a uh, Liberal uh, House uh, Speaker here in Australia. Why would uh, Democrats do that for the Republicans in the US? So they voted obviously against uh, McCarthy and he's gone. The, the eight rules uh, have rolled him. It is amazing. And I want to be very clear about what's going on. Like this is extraordinary. This is sort of because of the prime ministerial sort of role that the Speaker has in the Congress. This is this is like the Labor Party rolling elbow and getting the Liberals to vote with them to do that. Yeah. And they don't actually have they don't actually have a replacement, which is even more yeah. amazing. They do not have an alternative candidate. Um Matt Gates is a terrible human being. This is a man who is under investigation for child sex trafficking. Mm. Um I, I, I don't think on Apple I'm allowed to refer to his nickname, but I, I certainly it does involve the term McForrad. You might want to look on Twitter. Um looking at his nickname to really get a sense of how Matt Gates is perceived. He's from Florida. He's supported the worst kind of far-right culture war rubbish. Uh, he's obviously a light-in-the-eyes militant Trump supporter, and he was one of the holdouts who refused to vote for McCarthy when McCarthy was seeking the speakership. This, of course, and this happened uh, 268 days ago. Uh, they had this vote. So the Americans, unlike us, where we have a federal election usually every three years to turn over our House of Representatives and half of our Senate, the Americans turn over their House of Representatives, the Congress, mm. every two years. So they have an election when they're having a presidential election. President gets four terms, but congressional representatives only get two terms and four, they have to elect years. a new speaker Sorry. every time. Sorry, it is just Sorry, Van, four years and two years, not terms. Presidents are term limited to two terms. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But sorry. Yeah. So, but the, you elect a president once every four years. So a presidential yeah. term is four years in America, but a congressional representative only gets two years. And traditionally what happens is whoever wins, whichever party wins the presidency. So uh, Joe Biden in 2020 won the president's in the 2020 election won the presidency and with a lot of democratic support there was a majority democratic congress so you had nancy pelosi the great amazing octogenarian nancy pelosi became the speaker one of the most successful speakers in history in terms of bills passed and deals negotiated incredible person but two years later 
the Republicans gained, and this is normal, like halfway through a presidential term, the other party tends to get a bit of ground back, but the Republicans seriously underperformed. So the Republicans only have a five-seat majority in the Congress, which gives them the right to have the Speaker. And in America, unlike in Australia, they they don't understand the concept of a binding caucus because it's a radical individualist society. In Australia, if you are a member of the Labor Party and you have an internal vote and 50% plus one person says we will be voting for everybody to hug a tree, everybody in the caucus goes into parliament going, yep, this is a binding vote. I accept the will of the majority. I will hug a tree. Like, but in America and the Liberal Party are the same. Very rarely do liberals cross the floor. They go, oh, yeah, well, you know, we don't bind anybody, but it never happens. Mm. But or very, very, very rarely. But in America, it's not like that. So you essentially have to campaign for every single bill with your own people and convince your own people to vote for your own bills. And it's this constant horse trade. And it's one of the reasons why America is behind the world in a lot of ways legislatively, because it might actually getting bills passed is really difficult. They haven't passed their equal rights amendment in the United States. Like, you know, things that other Western democracies did in the 70s are still on the books there, you know, waiting for the majority votes to sort of turn up or get scheduled or whatever because it's constant, constant trading. But what's happened with McCarthy is just amazing. So he was part of a trio of uh, they were called the young guns of these sort of young Republican leaders who were profiled in 2007, Paul Ryan, who has since been destroyed, was one of them. I can't even remember the third one's name, but they were like, yeah, we're the future of the Republican Party, we're wheelers and dealers and whatever. And since the sort of change, the ideological change in the Republican Party that took place really in the 1990s under Clinton, is is what happened was your traditional Republicans were, I believe in institutions and the rule of law and small government and individual liberty and I love capitalism and neoliberalism is great and I like a strong military and I like to, you know, bomb communist countries into the ground, you know, that sort of Reaganist mm. framework. Well, as the years went on, they they had sort of right-wing drift away from the centre in the Republican Party. And in the 1990s, you saw the rise of Newt Gingrich, who was like a radical Republican who was like the party of no, we will contest every vote. Whatever the Democrats do is bad and we're going to say no against it. And we're not going to work with them and we're not going to be bipartisan and we're just going to power for power's sake. Mm. And Newt Gingrich really led that kind of Republican revolution. So the sort of seeds of Trumpism and that sort of extremist combative politic, you know, like liberal tears, own the libs kind of stuff was really sort of seeded back then. And, of course, what's happened is that the Republicans really struggled to hold on to speakerships because in a Congress that doesn't have binding caucuses where you generally have to convince people from the other party to vote for your bills because some of the people on your own side maybe won't, bipartisanship is sort of the way to get things done. And, of course, that's not in the DNA of the Republican Party anymore. So you have these speakers who are trying to cut deals, trying to advance agendas, trying to get agreement, and their own caucus, their own sort of right flank, attack them and bring them undone. Paul Ryan quit the speakership. He's now on the board of News Limited, you know, like there's this sort of channel house. And this is what happened with Kevin McCarthy, who 
dealt away his power. He essentially gutted his own job because having the title of Speaker was more important. And, of course, the ridiculous thing that McCarthy did was he threw himself in literally in bed with Trump. You know, he went from condemning the coup attempt on January 6th to within two weeks flying down to Mar-a-Lago where Trump lives and asking for Trump's blessing to become Speaker. Trump refers to him as my Kevin. My Kevin, the possessive, my Kevin. And, of course, McCarthy was never really a Trumpist. He's just, you know, a narcissistic opportunist, really. That's all he Mm. stands for. But he played the game to court the Trumpists and turned a blind eye to January 6th. And then he, he rolled Liz Cheney, who was his third most powerful lieutenant. Liz Cheney, obviously daughter of Dick mm. Cheney, you know, like establishment conservative family because she kicked off at Trump and went, he did lead a coup. What are we doing? Are we Americans or are we like coup leaders? This is ridiculous. And he campaigned against her um, for in the primaries, which is their pre-selection equivalent, mm. to put up an absolute lunatic called Harriet Hageman, who is just crazy right-wing loon, like campaigned against the third most possible powerful person in his own party because she said, hey, man, coups are bad. And he's cut all of these Trumpist deals to ingratiate himself with the likes of Matt Gates and the totally bonkers QAnon conspiracy theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene, a person of whom McCarthy said, I will never abandon this woman. You know, all of that crazy Trumpist stuff that's going on. Mm. And the party has gutted itself. They're not capable of running a speakership. They turn on their own. You know, they got their own power. And the Democrats, uh, you know, the Democrats are literally just sitting back and going, there are two parties in the United States of America, but only one of them is a party of government, and that's us. Yeah, well, it's been interesting to see exactly, you know, how this has all come about because, as you say, he did all those deals. He's sold his soul, really, to the to the Trumpists and the conspiracy theorists, and yet, you know, in the end, uh, he he seems to have uh, been toppled because the deal that he did was to keep the government open because the the American system is so bizarre in some ways that that the the budget process there requires so many approvals and and is is such a such a hostage to the political scene that the government was going to shut down kevin mccarthy was getting demands from the matt gates faction within the republicans to to stop the uh, the biden agenda quote unquote uh, by shutting down the government which you know the the Democrats were rightly pointing out is thousands of people's paychecks just wouldn't have gone out uh, to people who have done nothing wrong. They essentially would have been forced to take unpaid leave um, from their jobs. This is a this is one of the largest um, government workforces in the world, uh, and Kevin McCarthy did a deal with uh, the Biden administration to keep the government running for, I think it was, a hun- was it 100 days? Uh, it's like 45 days. And he 45. did a deal with congressional Democrats yeah. that they would vote vote with him, like support him to keep the government open for another 45 days. Because yeah. what the radicals are trying to do is massive ideological cuts to the American budget. They want to defund the Department of Justice because obviously the Department of Justice is, has indicted Trump and brought Trump, who, by the way, is facing 
91 criminal indictments across like four different jurisdictions. There's been a federal investigation through the Department of Justice into Trump and he's facing a court process for pretty serious criming yeah. and the, you know potential jail terms for sort of, if not treason, certainly treason-adjacent offences. <laughs> and yeah. so the Trumpists want to gut the Department of Justice and fire everybody so these investigations can't continue. I mean, it's nonsense, crazy clown land stuff. And, of course, the Democrats were never going to support that. And because the Republicans only have a five-seat majority, and it is, I mean, I, I don't use this word lightly, completely insane to do that. Like McCarthy wasn't going to give in. So you had this standoff. And the Democrats don't owe the Republicans anything. I mean, let's remember the Republicans are more than happy to go on Fox or Newsmax or One American News or the right-wing stations and accuse all the Democrats of being, you know, closet drag queen, blood-drinking pedophile child molesters, like in this ridiculous propaganda campaign they run against all Democrats and mm. the rest of it. But the Democrats who have have the union base in the United States, they're not a Labor Party, but Labor unions support the Democrats. They were like, we're not going to abandon public servants. We're not mm. going to have American working families who work for the government furloughed. This is completely ridiculous. We will cut a deal to, to extend the timeline so you can sort yourself out. And, of course, Kevin McCarthy turned around and did a, a media circuit of the right-wing news outlets going, I don't know the Democrats anything. And it's like they've literally just saved your bacon so every public servant in the United States doesn't campaign against the Republicans in the next election because they lost their mortgage because of you and this ridiculousness going on. And so the Democrats and Hakeem Jeffries, who's the new leader of the Democrats, mm. who succeeded Nancy Pelosi, he's an absolute He's an absolute street fighter. Like that man has seen political battles and won them, you know, and he was like, your response to our generous act of bipartisanship to save your bacon in order to defend our people has you went on a news circuit and tipped buckets on us for doing that and blamed us for your own party's dysfunction. Why would we support you for speaker? You know, and the caucus discipline of the Democrats all voting against him in American terms is kind of amazing. Mm. But there were eight uh, Republicans who voted to roll McCarthy and it, it's interesting because I've seen some of the Australian reporting is like they're all Trumpists. The really interesting thing is they're not all Trumpists. One of them is a rep from North Carolina called Nancy Mace, who in Republican terms these days is considered a moderate. And she represents a district that voted for Biden for president but voted for her for the Congress. Mm. And her opinion is that McCarthy is dysfunctional, you know, the budget process is going to collapse, somebody else has got to put their hand up, this is just ridiculous. And so it's not quite, it's just the Trumpists and the rest of it. Because the other thing with the government shutdown, and this was what was burbling within the Republican Party as well, there are 18 Republican members of Congress who represent districts that voted for Biden for president. And yeah. there are another 15 representatives who are in very Democratic threatened congressional districts. That's 33 seat, like 33 marginals effectively that the Democrats have a very good chance of winning in the next election, especially if the Republicans pick Trump to be their president again, because it'll be a presidential election. Mm. And there's a lot of internal disquiet, like it's essentially a civil war. But what's really significant in what's going on in America at the moment 
is that the Trumpist position has been to with, to withhold aid and support to Ukraine. And this is a really big issue because obviously Ukraine is fighting Russia, like mm. it's Ukraine against a much bigger nuclear-armed neighbour. Ukraine has made the point to the NATO allies, to allies like Australia, to the United States, saying, look, we are fighting so you don't have to. They invaded our country. If we can get the arms to get the Russians back over their border, that will destroy Putin and they won't try another like conquest again. Essentially, we are stopping them from marching on Poland. We're stopping them from marching on Lithuania. We're stopping them from annexing more countries and trying to rebuild, you know, Ruski Mir and the, the old Russian Empire and the old borders of the old Soviet Union. So if you support us, we're essentially fighting on your behalf to make your greatest enemy weaker. But the Trumpists have gone all in for Putin and are blocking American aid to Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are like, what is going on? And Biden's been giving them assurances going, you are our ally, we will not abandon you. But the Trumpists, and let's remember that Trump got Russian help in the 2016 election. That has been proved beyond a doubt. Mm. And if you don't believe it, you can read my book, QAnon and On, on, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, and read all about how Russian disinformation campaigns work. Um, And this issue of these holdups and wanting budget carve-outs has real implications for global democracy if the money doesn't come through to help Ukraine fight the Russians. But the Trump movement is more than happy to abandon Ukraine. It's really, I find it really, really fascinating, Van, because, you know, you, you're really across the, the the politics of of the United States, and, and I have a, a bit more interest in the kind of military strategy part and the kind of economic um, repercussions. And and the the war in Ukraine has seen America triple its daily production of artillery shells. Now that that might seem like a, a small thing, but in some of these congressional districts, you've got very large. Um, you know, people used to refer to the uh, military industrial complex in America. Like D. Eisenhower, that's yeah. what he called it during during the Cold War. Um, and of course, the military industrial complex does employ a lot of people, um, often in some Republican held congressional districts. And the idea that uh, Republicans would cut funding for those sorts of projects, those sorts of programs, not out of any sort of desire to see peace in the world, but just because, you know, they don't want to support Ukraine. At the same time, they're going to be undercutting jobs in their own district because those sorts of factories do employ large numbers of people uh, and and they are ramped up at the moment because they are producing more shells, more guns, more artillery pieces, more tanks. I mean, there there was a tank factory before the war. I think it was in um, Ohio that Trump had ordered to keep making tanks, even though the army didn't want them. Well, now of course those tanks are going to places like Poland and Germany, who can on sell the tanks that they had to Ukraine. But you know, <laughs> if if they cut if they cut these sorts of programs um, because they're not going to send them to Ukraine anymore, well, those jobs will disappear as well. It's 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 a bizarre political uh, interaction. Uh, I mean, there are two really interesting things that are happening, and they have to do with the modern disinformation environment. Mm. So, Joe Biden, in my opinion. As you know, like a good left-wing girl who loves democracy, I I can say with confidence I think he's the greatest American president of my lifetime. By some, and I and I was born during the reign of Carter, and Carter actually I was born just before Carter, but Carter mm. was 
an extraordinary president at an absolutely terrible time. But Biden is amazing. Like Biden really gets it. Biden appears on picket lines. Biden backs in the working class. Biden is raising wages and investing and building the infrastructure of climate resistance. Like he's fantastic. And And he's just like wet. And if you want to be like an American president, you can join your union at australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, and uh, hopefully we'll see an Australian uh, prime minister at a picket line one day too. Well, I mean, that would be lovely. I mean, I mean, entirely. But, I mean, Biden is fantastic. And he was like, where do people think the money goes? Like, you know, when they pass these bills to supply arms to Ukraine, they're not handing like $8 billion or however much it is to Zelensky in a bag going here, spend this on something you like. That's not how this works. The aid that they give, the money, the appropriations they make for the war in Ukraine pays for American factories to build armaments that and employ Americans to make them and use American steel and American parts and American patents and American technology and export them to Ukraine so the, Amer- so the Ukrainians can fire them at the Russians. Like it, it and it has what's interesting, and Tom Nichols, who's you know obviously my conservative hero, and it's a very complicated journey. How how me as a committed democratic socialist ended up so heavily influenced by somebody who worked for Reagan and Rides for the Atlantic, but he never lies, Tom Nichols, and I'm into him. He he was talking about Americans live in this distortion field where they think that. The situation, like situations, are very different to what they are. So they did a poll recently about um, foreign aid and how much foreign aid Americans thought that the American government. What percentage of the budget did they think the American government spent on foreign aid? And the majority of Americans thought twenty five percent of the American budget went into foreign aid and they thought and they were asked what would be a reasonable amount and they said well 10% and Tom Nichols was right your wish is granted it's less than 1% we spend less than 1% of our budget on foreign aid and we do that so we can exercise soft power to keep markets open to keep you getting all the products that you like and are selling things to make you rich like how do you think this works what do you think America's about but yeah and they just believe these things like a majority of Americans think that the economy is worse under Biden than it was under Trump and it's like you have record employment in America at the moment. Wages are going up. You know, like you have unions who are winning pay deals and setting new industrial precedents for what people get paid. And the um, Inflation Reduction Act and all the climate action stuff they're doing, creating jobs, rebuilding communities. Like uh, the American economy is recovering from the pit that it went into under Trump who ran up. I can't underline this enough, record debt on nothing, on tax cuts that people didn't need uh, for the richest Americans. And Biden is literally repairing the damage and yet a majority of Americans think the economy is doing badly. And, I mean, what can you do? And then you have this organised Trumpist movement. And what's happened, of course, is who the Trumpists are electing are crazy people. Like mm. Matt Gates is not a competent somebody who's facing child sex trafficking charges is not somebody who's really paying a lot of attention to policy detail or what's practical or reasonable. Like there's a Venn overlap of people who are 
facing charges and people who are incompetent in the responsible governance capacity. Ben, you're a governance guy. Like would you appoint somebody who was facing charges and or under criminal investigation to any kind of decision? You wouldn't let those people on the board of a of a bin. Like and because the Trumpist machine works riling up the base and obviously in very heavily armed bits of America, everybody's carrying a gun. There are people who will not run in Republican primaries who are quite capable conservatives and administrators mm. and governance people because they're terrified of getting shot by Trumpists. Like this is a thing that is happening in the United States. And, of course, the people who are getting elected through that populist mechanism in solid Republican areas are absolutely off chops. Marjorie Taylor Greene believes that Jews are shooting lasers from space. For some reason, I don't quite get any part of the logic that that led her there, or that's interrupting the weather and climate change isn't real because it's like Jews in spaceships with lasers, like it's the craziest stuff. And the problem the Republicans have is that if they keep, if their hardcore base keeps pre-selecting and voting for these people in hardcore Republican areas, like the the reflection of who the Republican Party is, are a bunch of clowns, like absolute mm. crazy Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobert style lunatics. And Kevin McCarthy, who did deals with these people, who enfranchised them within decision-making structures, who made them a part of committees and government and eviscerated his own power just to be Speaker, they have facilitated that. They Mm. have given that imprimatur to Trump to pick and choose who gets to be what and who gets to carry the Trumpist vote. And it's eating them up inside. And it's all based on nonsense. It's based on these extreme zealot positions, promising things that can't possibly be delivered. You know, vowing to defund the Department of Justice is just absolutely loopy. Mm. Like that is not a reasonable demand. The most in any kind of democratic framework, that's just not a thing you can do. And but that's where we are because people sit on the internet all day reading Facebook pages and watching Fox News and Newsmax and being told what's up is down, what's black is white, what's inside is outside. And they believe it and they vote for it. Well this is the result. And I mention this in the context of what's going on in this country Mm. and the dance that Peter Dutton is very prepared to do with the same forces of disinformation and destruction, Ben. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a good segue into talking about where I thought it was a brilliant segue. I thought I nailed that, like absolutely (laughs) nailed the landing. I think you really did because it is, uh, I saw uh, Prime Minister Albanese again today point out that there's been a huge amount of disinformation and misinformation um, online about the referendum, but not just online. He did point out that um, in question time as well, some of the disinformation uh, had been promulgated and, and uh, led led from the the Dutton camp in the in the Liberal Party. And it's interesting, Van, to see. I think you know you and I have talked about this before, right? That uh, in Australia we have. A very different system to the US. In the US, it's a first past the post system. It's a um, voluntary voting. It's on a Tuesday. It's actually not really designed to be universal enfranchisement. Um, whereas here, we have compulsory voting. We have a preferential system or ranked choice. If you're listening in the United States, um, which means that there is a there is a kind of uh, compromise, if you will. There's a, a gravitational pull towards the centre to build a majoritarian position that people will need preferences from those who may not think 
of them as their first choice, but don't see them as their last. Um, whereas in a referendum, it's a very binary yes, no position. So where the culture wars in America have kind of created this monstrosity, this Trumpist monstrosity that's now devouring itself, even though even though it's doing that, it can still hold um, all these seats, lots of seats in the in the Congress, um, nearly half the seats in the Senate. Uh, yet in Australia, that doesn't really hold true. Yet, because of the way a referendum is structured, it's structured very differently to our electoral system, where it is a binary yes no. So essentially, it's first past the post. Yes, it's still compulsory, but. There is essentially a waiting, if you like, because you've got to get a majority of states as well to get the referendum up. You don't have to get a majority to defeat it. You just need to make sure that the positive, so the yes side, doesn't get a majority to defeat it. So the culture war uh, element is very prevalent at the moment because we have a referendum, because that's essentially what referendums are. Our constitutional document sets the culture of our political system, uh, what powers exist to what levels of government. And so historically, they've been about who we are as a country. And then, of course, legislation flows from that, from our much more majoritarian style uh, election. So you've seen this explosion in misinformation uh, around the referendum and people just swallowing it up, you know, and, and as you say, Dutton promoting it. I mean, the Liberals are standing next to some of the most horrendous things on pre-poll, um, you know, and, and we've seen them on, on pre- people who are recognisably Liberal candidates, Liberal Party members, Liberal Party MPs. Um, now, not all of them. There are some Liberal Party MPs, I have to say, or former MPs who have been very outspoken in support of the referendum. Yeah, and a, a, st- a short on a roll, Malcolm Turnbull. Yep. Julia Banks. Mm-hmm. John Hewson. Mm-hmm. Julian Lisa. There, there are more. Bridget Archer. Mm-hmm. Like there are liberals who have been out. Uh, Julie Wyatt. Bishop. Huh? Ken Wyatt. Ken Wyatt. Yeah, people putting up their hands and going, actually, this is for the good of the country. Yes, is good. Yeah. You know, and they should because it is for the good of the country. But the idea that Peter Dutton would be so smug and so happy to engage around this disinformation effort, it is disgusting and it is dangerous and it will bite him in the way that it bit Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy, who went from condemning Donald Trump on January twenty on January 6th because he clearly was leading a coup to within two weeks going down saying, sir, can I have your support? You know, like... It's it's really interesting as well because there are some polls that have come out in the last couple of days which do show that the yes... Uh, case is gaining some ground. So for the first time really this calendar year, yes, is starting to make up some ground on on the no case. Um, But more than that, uh, it continues to show that Labor leads the coalition um, by more than 52 to 48 uh, across the country uh, and that Albo is preferred Prime Minister by at least 20 points over Dutton. So even though Dutton has tried to not just use this culture war to defeat the voice, but there are Liberal MPs who have been um, blind quoted, which just means their names haven't been attached to it, but they've given quotes to journalists, where they have said that in party rooms and in discussions, Dutton and others have said defeating the voice 
gets us to the starting line of being able to win the next election. They've tried to make this a referendum about the Labor government. That hasn't really worked because that's not how people that's not how people operate here. So he's he's incinerating his personal standing. His personal standing continues to drop, which is interesting to see. Elbows remains about the same and Labor still leads on every published poll uh, when it comes to federal uh, voting intention. It's just that Dutton has decided to, for, for what seems like a misunderstanding of the electoral systems that we operate under here, has decided to support the importation of American-style culture wars and to kick the 3% of the population who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the eighty percent of them who want the voice and and to appeal to this, and and it may well it may well work in defeating the voice, but it doesn't seem to me, uh, based on current numbers and current trends, that it will translate into the kind of electoral success that he's banking on. No, and it also lets a very evil genie out. And like I've been saying this, people like Wayne Swan have been observing this as well. What I think we're seeing, I mean, you and I are ardent yes campaigners. Yeah. You know, we stand in solidarity with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander union comrades who are absolutely in for yes. And so we are also in for yes and obviously have been campaigning really hard and seeing the disinformation, which is so obviously disinformation, and finding from our following people who listen to the show, people who follow us on social media, talking to us about their brother, you know, their friend, their old friend. I mean, I had one of my old friends post clear disinformation on their Facebook page the other day, and I was genuinely shocked. I was like, "But you know me, <laughs> like, how could you possibly fall for this nonsense?" I think it's been really alarming because we're watching it happen in social media where these people are sort of identifying themselves. It's really terrifying to think that there are people in our communities who believe this stuff. I mean, in one way, if you're really unscrupulous and you want to make some money, you know that there's somebody whose triggers you can push pretty easily and probably get them to buy anything you're selling them. But it's the loss of respect for people. Like it's one thing to turn around and go, actually, I don't think it should be in the constitution. I'm uncomfortable with that. It should be a parliamentary decision. Okay. Sure. I mean, I disagree, but fine. Or I, you know, I don't recognize the sovereignty of the crown and I'm taking a position that I'm, well, whatever, you know, so I'm not going to engage in that. There are positions you can take that are not based on disinformation that are based on ideology. And that's, that's how democracy is supposed to work. But to watch people make voting decisions based around nonsense, and the one that you and I saw the other day, which was the one that this person who I don't think I will ever speak to again, was like it's all a corporate conspiracy because BlackRock and Vanguard, you know, are why are the corporates donating to the Yes campaign? And it's like, well, I mean, there's corporates and there's corporates. You and I are very critical about Qantas, mm. but they're an equal opportunity employer. Mm. You know, they have gone through reconciliation action plans. They're committed to principles of diversity and inclusion. You know, they did support the marriage equality um, mm. plebiscite case for yes. You know, um, Clive Palmer is spending $2 million this week on no campaign attack ads. Mm. And if I'm going to have to make a decision about the slightly more ethical 
player in a choice of two, definitely Qantas. Qantas looks holy the moment you bring Clive Palmer into the discussion. Gina Reinhardt is supporting no. Mm. Like the yes case is not, you know, a corporate Trojan horse. That is not what's going on. Um, And the idea that Australia's most reprehensibly immoral corporate characters would be supporting no, I think is a bit of a sign. But can you explain to people why the involvement of BlackRock and Vanguard is perhaps not the evil undercover conspiracy that disinformationists want you to believe. Well, I mean, it was very strange because the what they what they what the disinf- that, that particular piece of disinformation was extrapolating out. So it was it was basically saying that um, because um, Vanguard and BlackRock um, hold shares in some of these companies, uh, BHP, Qantas, Coles, whatever wh- whoever they might be, who are who have expressed support for the voice, that there was this cabal of asset managers, global asset managers, that were that wanted the voice because it would give them some kind of power to take over Australia. Now, the reality is those asset managers tend to hold those shares on behalf of other institutional investors. So, for example, in Australia, there's three trillion dollars worth of shares held on behalf of um, superannuation funds. Now, you know, that's a lot. So it, it's not that Vanguard and BlackRock are donating. What they were trying to say, what they, what they were trying to do was draw a connection between the, the likes of Qantas or BHP or Rio or someone donating or CSL, whoever it might be, basically big publicly listed companies and the fact that these asset managers hold shares in them when the reality is they hold shares in them on behalf of other people. So what I found really interesting was that person who posted that probably in all likelihood has a superannuation fund themselves and and that superannuation fund probably owns shares through one of BlackRock, Vanguard, one of these global asset managers, because that's how financial markets tend to work. There are exceptions and there are different, you know, different mechanisms and whatever in different pockets. But that's why those funds are so big, is because they invest other people's money on their behalf. They're not BlackRock is not um, it's not directing Qantas to donate to anything. It's not. I mean, if anything, BlackRock's going, "Hey, why are you guys burning shareholder value um, by illegally sacking people?" That's probably their bigger problem at the moment when it comes to Qantas. With Rio Tinto, it's probably like you know you burn a lot of shareholder value when you blew up those indigenous rocks. That's that's a problem. So there's there's no. Um, it's just people draw these weird connections, and of course, if you're if you're susceptible to that, and people jump on it, then it really hurts. Like yesterday, I was at Prepol. I just want to relate this story because it was. I'm sure there's other people on Prepol having similar discussions, but you know, it's the no camp. There was a, some no campaigners there, and this one no campaigner came up to me, and we were just sort of chatting generally and trying to stay out of the rain a little bit. Um, and they, they said to me, oh, I don't believe in climate change. I said, oh, well, I mean, I went to the Paris Climate Conference and I'm pretty sure the science disagrees with you, but, you know, you're entitled to your view. I, I disagree with you on a couple of things now. I went, oh, well, 
what about the World Economic Forum? I, I mean, I really, I really want to know what good that does because I really want it to do some good because I know it's trying to take over the world. Can you just explain to me what good that that's doing? Because um, I just feel like everything I believe in is being smashed these days. And I thought to myself, these are people who are desperately trying to understand a world that they think has changed without them. Um, every no volunteer that I saw yesterday was easily over the age of 55. Most were probably over the age of 65. Um, and quite frankly, they they were frightened people. And, and this person talking to me um, was really quite, I think, surprised that, you know, in my Yes T-shirt with my Yes badge, I wasn't yelling at her. I wasn't trying to pick a fight with her. I think she had expected that we would be somehow adversarial in a confrontational, pseudo-violent way. That's not how I do pre-poll. As you know, Van, I try and engage with people. Some people don't want to be <laughs> that's engaged. Why, that's why I don't do pre-poll and, and don't do booth work because everybody that, wants to pick a fight with little Vanny, don't they, Benny? But, you know, sometimes people don't want to have an engagement. There was one one fella who came up to me, took the, took the yes flyer, and then he said, well, you know, I'll take it, but just so you know, it is divisive and it is racist. And I said, well, I don't think it is racist. 80% of Indigenous people want this. And he went, well, no, it is racist. Uh, and the woman standing next to me, who is herself a First Nations woman, said, well, it, it's actually what Aboriginal people have asked for. And he said, no, it's racist and dividing the country, and off he walked. And I just said, okay, well, you have a good day because you're not going to convince people who are that entrenched, right? Like that interaction is not going to do that. But these people are consuming this misinformation and it is targeted to them. And I did notice they had all bought little no hats, you know, they had all bought and, and you know, they're for sale. They're not giving them away. They'd all bought merchandise, because um, it gives them a sense of community, a sense of belonging. In a world that they think has changed around them, it's something they latch onto and go, yeah, my problems are because of the 3% of the population, the majority of whom don't live as long as me, don't have the same access to education or job opportunities or healthcare as me, but they're the reason why my life is not exactly as I had hoped it would be when I was 16, some 15 but years it is. It's also really confounding because it's like – I'm always like, if you're if you're really worried about climate science, do you know what you should do? Study it. You should go to a university and access the education, especially if you're retired. They're not going to stop you from going. Have you got the time to go and the resources to support that? I, I always, and it's like, what about the World Economic Forum? And it's like, madam, please get an education, not from Facebook. Like yeah. <laughs> engage in the critical process and if you want to feel more in control, like knowledge is power, you know, and, and there are lots of ways that you can access hard knowledge and critical engagement with these subjects rather than be frightened of them. But I, I've been sharing this really great article that was written by one of the doctors for Yes, who were one of the campaign groups. Mm. And, by the way, can I do a plug for um, Irish Australians for Yes? Sure. I have joined Irish Australians for yes, despite the fact that my family have not lived in that country since 1908. Apparently, we are perfectly welcome, which is fantastic. And um, we we're still all Catholic as hell, but you know, um, but Irish for yes, I just absolutely love. Um, but Doctors for Yes, and they'd put out a, a really great piece about 
why your dad might be voting no when you're voting yes and looking at the psychology of fear and the way that particularly in men of a certain age there are very deliberate fear triggers that the no campaign is activating with disinformation a notion that the world is moving beyond you that you are not capable that a, a world that's moving in this direction that you feel unsure of means that you feel like you can't protect and defend your family anymore that you think unless you stop change that your your children and your grandchildren will be disassociated from the world as you understand it and it's it, it, it's kind of it, it it's a really really good piece and I'll get Ben to share it in the links because it is it's a syndrome it's a generational syndrome that plays mm. on a lot of established stereotypes that people use to make sense of their own identity around masculinity and I'm a protector I'm a defender and you know it, depending on what kind of place you're in I mean the disinformationists know what they're doing who were the big disinformationists in the world oh Russia. I mean, they've put a lot of time and effort into working out what triggers people. Steve Bannon, who runs like a global communication network to feed disinformation to people with his billions of dollars and donations and the infrastructure he runs, you know, the Trumpist movement, all the money they get from their corporate sponsors. Like these are massive, sophisticated operations with heaps of staff and heaps of money and they've spent a lot of time learning how to trigger people. But, I mean... It is really important that, you know, Ben is so, you should see him on pre-poc and I just say I have wifely pride because he's, you know, he's friendly and he's approachable and he doesn't get into arguments, you know, and he does reach out to these people and especially if you have somebody in your life who has become susceptible to disinformation, if there's someone who you're close to and care about, now is definitely the time to not argue with them because you can't reason someone out of a place they weren't reasoned into, but to make them feel less afraid and build trust and social and emotional relationships. And I should say that one of the people that um, I spoke to yesterday, uh, you know, came up to me took the flowers and was an older fella, probably fits a little bit into that category you were just talking about and actually said, I've decided to vote yes because my children talked me into it. I've got five kids and they discussed it with me and I was going to vote no um, and they changed my mind. They told me why they thought it was important and I've decided that, you know, they're going to be here longer, their kids are going to be here longer, and if that's what they want, they think it's the right thing for this country, then I'm going to support them. I thought that was a really enlightened position. This is someone who has gone from a no to a yes, and it shows the power of those conversations. It's one of the reasons why the million calls for yes uh, activity is underway at the moment, which is being run by the Yes campaign. You can go to calls.yes23.com.au. That's calls yes23.com.au. Uh, I know unions around the country are getting involved in this as well, so you can check that out at australianunions.org.au uh, uh, slash uh, wow is the link to join your union. But it's because just calling people that you know can actually make a difference, and that's what that that action and that activity is about. And, uh, you know, there's some photos up on social media. Uh, you can see there some some union leaders calling their aunties and their uncles and people that maybe they haven't spoken to about this yet. Um, you know, it's important to have conversations with people in your family just like you would about this podcast, right? Like it, it is, it's about engaging with people 
And quite frankly, there does seem to be a bit of a mood shift. You know, I've noticed, Van, um, the new ad from Briggs uh, where he's basically just said, you know, Google it. Have you Googled what it is? Because if you haven't Googled it yet, you probably should, you know, put aside all the stuff you're getting on Facebook and just what's the first result on Google? Actually, it's a description of what the voice actually is. Um, And, of course, the new Yes23 ads, which are really focused on what the kind of repercussions are of having a voice to parliament, having this recognition, and and what happens if we don't do it, right? Like if we just let things continue as they are, uh, you know, if the if the misinformation is correct, right, and there's all this money that just goes up in smoke and all the rest of it, well, do we think that's going to change by voting no? Like does voting no change anything? No, it doesn't. Nothing changes if you vote no. Uh, and nothing improves is the point of that, of the new Yes23 ads. Well, this so, is what Briggs said. We're living in no. This yeah. is no. And no means, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians are less likely to finish school, you know, less likely to make it to old age, less likely to actually access their superannuation, you know, less likely to be in stable work and more likely to commit suicide or be incarcerated. That's no. That's the reality of no, you know, and it's not because of any inherent quality of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. That's what a racist would tell you, that it was an inherent quality. Mm. It's because of the way that we've structured society. And Mm. historically decisions were made to deprive and punish Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians just for being Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And and I have to say, Van, um, some people did mention to me on pre-poll that they'd seen the piece that you wrote on Facebook about your grandfather and your friend's grandfather and the disparate experiences they had and the intergenerational impact that had when they both came back from serving Australia in the Second World War and what that did to both your family and your friend's family um, and that they had shared that with other people who had said to them, I hadn't really thought about how decisions made in the 40s or the 50s were impacting people still today. And, of course, they do. Like we know that because we talk about politics all the time. But if you're living your daily life, you're probably not thinking about the fact that actually the life, the world we live in now is an accumulation of common law and policy decisions that stretch back hundreds of years and in this country since settlement and for the vast majority of the time the Commonwealth of Australia has existed, the laws regarding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have been punitive, they've been oppressive. Um, In some cases, they've been downright homicidal, if not genocidal. Uh, And that means that we're living in that legacy. And we have to, to change that. We have to change the way we do things, not just say, oh, well, that was in the past. Now we think of things differently. Because that doesn't. Well, I mean, this is the thing, and this is what people have said to me. They're like, "Oh, well, you know, I wasn't responsible. I never stole an Aboriginal baby." It's like, yeah, but the government did, and that set up generational trauma and generational problems. Dr. Tracy Westerman, who's amazing, who's a um, a psychologist and a psychological researcher, she's had some pieces out. She only she's Indigenous herself, and she treats Indigenous clients, and she's like. All of these people who present to the world as very functional, hold down jobs have inherited trauma of generations of, of stolen children, displacement, severed family relationships, 
all of the things that happen mm. in the wake of that and they affect people now and today. And it's mm. like, it, sure, you're not responsible for what happened in the past, but you are goddamn responsible for what happens in the present. And how can you live with yourself saying no to change when change means we might be able to actually create some social equity? Ben, speaking of social equity, I do need to talk about very briefly the economic circumstance in which we find ourselves. Of course, some people are saying the current economic cycle is is playing into the referendum and causing some people to feel less secure and that insecurity is being preyed upon by misinformation and, and fueling that cycle. There is some good news. The Reserve Bank left interest rates on hold uh, at 4.1%, didn't increase interest rates. Um, Inflation, the Reserve Bank Governor, New Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock has said that inflation in Australia has passed its peak, but is still too high. Uh, Of course, as we've discussed on the show before, I'm still of the view that raising interest rates is not the mechanism that we need to get inflation under control in this country. It is the things that are on the fiscal side uh, and the neglect of the Morrison government is something that we're trying to deal with. And when I say neglect, I mean around skills, I mean around education, I mean around infrastructure. These are the things that will drive productivity into the future. They're the things that the Albanese government is investing in as well as early childhood education. We know that that's a big driver for workforce participation as well as productivity and, of course, improving wages, which under the previous government, there was a deliberate policy to suppress those, whereas now there is much more um, focus on lifting wages and lifting wages as a share of the economy. Of course, under the Morrison government, they dropped to record lows. That means that every single person listening to this podcast was getting less money proportionally than their predecessors, previous generations, were getting as a whole of the economy. So when the Liberals say, oh, Labor's not interested in growing the pie, they just want to take more of it uh, for their mates being working people, that's what they're talking about. When in reality, the last 40 years has seen more and more of the pie go to fewer and fewer people at the very uh, top, if you like, of the socioeconomic scale. What uh, has come through in the last couple of weeks, the last few days in particular, is that the majority of inflation now is coming from external sources. So firstly, uh, price of oil, which we are still far too dependent on. It's another reason why we should be making the change to renewables as quickly uh, and as justly as we can, because if we can wean ourselves off fossil fuels, the sooner we wean ourselves off fossil fuels, the sooner we are not dependent on the cartel that is OPEC, that's the uh, oil-producing uh, economic uh, cartel, and, of course, also around housing costs, which is somewhat ironic given the last 17 months has seen the Reserve Bank push up the cost of an average mortgage by more than $1,350 a month. So at the same time as the RBA is supposed to be responsible for curbing inflation, it has fueled one of the big drivers of inflation, and that is the cost of housing. So there you go. That's a bit of a conflicting position that the RBA has. This old-fashioned 1980s view, if you use interest rates, you'll be able to control the heat in the economy. You can create unemployed workers, which will drive down costs. That's not the world we live in. We live in a 
shortage of skills. We live in a shortage of labour. We need people to do work. Of course we do. The employment white paper that we've discussed earlier in earlier episodes makes it very, very clear. We need people in the workforce. The largest generation in world history is on the verge of retirement. They will require more care. They will live for longer than any other generation before them. We need more people to do work for longer uh, and to be engaged in that work. That's why joining a union is so important. That's why the ACTU and the union movement has called for the implementation of the employment white paper to abolish involuntary unemployment, to close the loopholes that are seeing $9 billion, $9 billion transferred from what should be wages in for people who work in labor hire, for people who are casually employed, and for people in the gig economy. That's $9 billion for hundreds of thousands of working people that should be in their pockets as wages that's going to corporations like BHP, Qantas, gig platforms that use sham contracting, And, of course, the Liberals are saying, no, they won't pass that bill. So important that we pass it, put that downward pressure on inflation because working people will be properly remunerated uh, and have job security. So, look, I'm aware that there are unions campaigning around the closing loophole bill. It's so important that we get that passed. if, If that's not passed... And this is something, Van, I wanted to make really clear today. If the closing the loophole bill is not passed, if Parliament decides not to make it against the rules of employment to hire someone on a different pay rate to do the same job as someone they've already employed, if they don't make it against the rules to use sham digital contracting to undermine employment, just because you use a platform. By the way, there are good providers who do use platforms and do employ people. You can do that. It's proven. It works. But if they say you can undermine workers by just putting them on a sham contract, you can undermine wages by making somebody labour hire, you can effectively freeze someone's pay for years, if not decades, by keeping them in casual employment, even though the role is ongoing. If they don't pass the closing loopholes bill, that's what the parliament is giving free reign to. And I can tell you, dear listeners, that what will happen is more people will be shifted into that. What we call the gig economy now will simply become the economy. You will see it in sector after sector. We will see industry and role after role fall to this insidious undermining of wages and conditions. The reason we need this legislation is so that people can afford their mortgages, so that we can afford to make the transitions from gas appliances to electric appliances, so that we can actually have the kind of society that so many people say they want us to have, which is a well-paid, secure, well-employed society that engages with each other on social issues, on sporting field, at the market, down the street, in our communities every single day. So, look, the good news there is the RBA's kept rates on hold. 
Inflation's probably peaked. We're coming through it. Now we can actually start to see some real gains. Ben, we've had a big show already, but there is some good news. Yeah, Fat Bear Week. Fat Bear Week. Um, I've got to say, I'm just going to give this one over to Ben because you may not know this, we may not have disclosed this particular detail of our relationship, but I refer to Ben as Large Bear. And in various contexts, I am either Little Bear or the Crocodile, which is fine. So our unwritten biography of our relationship is the Bear and the Crocodile, which we think suits us. But Fat Bear Week is so on brand for Ben. Ben, tell everybody about Fat Bear Week. So Fat Bear Week is an annual celebration of success. That So it... It what happens is it it started in 2014 and there's a million votes were cast in 2022. Essentially, people vote for which bear has put on the most fat over summer uh, in these um, these national parks in Alaska uh, before they go into hibernation. So. Um, Basically, if you don't know about this, over summer, bears gorge themselves so that they can go into hibernation and survive. And when they come out uh, in spring, they look really skinny. And if you if you go and check out, if you Google Fat Bear Week, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And, of course, when they go in, they're massive. They've put on hundreds of kilos of weight. Um you know, when you think about a grizzly bear, you think about this big monstrous animal. That's normally the fat bear part, right? And essentially, <laughs> what happens is the the rangers at these national parks um, at, at Katmai, I think it's called, um, draw uh, brackets like it's a like it's a match, right? And you vote for one bear or another, and then they end up at a playoff. I wish um, you could see Ben's face. He's just like pure distillation of delight at this point. I just think it's fantastic. You can check it out, fatbearweek.org. You can cast your votes. Um, uh, so it starts on October 4, uh, which is today, uh, uh, be US time. So maybe tomorrow, our time, uh, and goes uh, until October 10. And look, there's lots of information there about the bears. Um, of course, what it's about is conserving bears and preserving bears as part of the natural ecosystem as well. You know, they gorge themselves on fish. You can watch them on these live stream videos. It's just awesome. Like it, it's such a such a wonderful part of nature. And you know what's really great? You know, as much as uh, we've poured buckets on Kevin McCarthy, uh, at least he's made sure the National Park Service will stay open for the duration of Fat Bear Week. Yeah, so- with their gov- by averting the government shutdown. <laughs> if the government shutdown had have taken place, all of the national parks in the United States would be closed. Exactly right. So, you know, Fat Bear Week, get around it, check it out online, uh, vote for your favourite bear and, uh, you know, if you want to post pictures on our social media, go for it. Oh, yeah, now- we would absolutely love that. Um, I want to make an announcement. Um, for those of you who like my work, you can see and hear more of it. I'm one of the talking heads on the ABC television show, The Making of Modern Australia, Makers of Modern Australia. 
Makers in Modern Australia, um, which looks at all these amazing Australians and their contributions to the arts and to um, social policy and science and all kinds of things. So you can watch me on that. It's on iView. Um, very exciting to find out Jessie Street, who was an amazing Australian woman, one of the pioneers of the UN, um, is actually related to our friend, the writer Andrew P Street, and which I found out after he saw me on the TV going, you were talking about my relation, which is very exciting. But also I had the huge honour of narrating an ABC radio documentary, a three-part radio documentary called Dusted, which is about the human cost of mining and the just extraordinary story of um, myonostysis, silicosis, mesothelioma um, and black lung disease and these diseases that affect miners in, in different mining industries and more than a century of scandalous cover-ups and propaganda campaigns to pretend that miners weren't sick when they were. And mm. it's so fascinating. It was done, but it's on Radio National. Again, you can find it online and we'll post links to it. But I think a lot of listeners to our show will be really, really interested in those particular stories because they're full on. Um, but obviously this program is only made possible with the help of our generous supporters. Um, who enable us to, by advertising, promote the show to more people with their um, voluntary contributions to our um, sustainability. I'd like to acknowledge our cadre, and I'm going to do them very quickly. Uh, If the screen doesn't shoot up, okay, I can do this. I can do this. From Sydney, she says, Cadre, Shamila Lacal, Ms. Deanne Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph Karina, Bali, Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbon, Shane Horsfall, Andy Stavitt, Ken Lee, Jason Paris, Mega Itchy Soros, Matt Trezies, Anne Coleman, Ross Kenner, 888, Bromman Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Colm Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, Annie Balden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Boris, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Jed Carney, Bromman, Punch Drunk Veteran, Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra, Tui, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me. Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Glenn Robbie, Bresh, Daniel, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers. Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3, McCabe, Nerissa Simon, Ag Katagol, Lauren Ash and Banjo, Narungaman, Jessica Davey 26, John Sharp and Peter Bath, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters, Stuart Munn, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, Adrian Valente, Mazritza at Carradale 68, Frank the House, Erica Pizzuti. John, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen Delahaye, Kim, Murray Bardwell, Janet McCalman, Jeremy Moe, Rosie Elliott, Lara, Robert Notfield, One, Michael Wales, Sanj Kelly, Darina, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel, Ad Crazy Kazza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Annie Wren, Melanie Denning, Jodie A, Penelope Judge, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S Wood, Dedham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Nandita Hannum, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett Graham, Oxley, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, Gail Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew, Ivy Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Bunk and Basher, Katie Wood, at the Real Never Longbody, Sandy Bonegut, at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. Congratulations to everyone who makes a contribution. If you want to make a contribution to our podcast so that more people can hear us, go to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. You can give once, you can make a buck a week uh, buck a week contribution, you can become extended reach for 10 bucks a month or cadre for twenty dollars a month. And of course, we will always be free to download and always be free to listen to. That's a commitment we've made as long as we keep going. And you know what? We're still a top 30 
political podcast and we're still regularly in the top like 80 in news. It's quite bizarre. So keep liking, sharing, have the conversations, get on the phones, talk to your friends, talk to your family about why you're voting yes at the referendum. If you don't get along to ProPol, make sure you turn up on the Saturday uh, and cast your vote. And don't forget to tune in. Uh, We may have a break this Sunday for the weekend wrap. We have a couple of commitments, which mean we have to see uh, a very close friend of ours celebrate his birthday. Uh, But we will be back for sure next Wednesday, and we might try and sneak in an episode this weekend if we can. Until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you. I miss you too. Bye. Bye.